You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. We would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is located on unseceded indigenous land. The Kanyankehaka Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Teotihuacan or Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today, it is home to a diverse population of indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connections with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with indigenous and all peoples within the Montreal community. I am your host, Olivia, and today I will be chatting with Philippe about his paper entitled Impacts of Government Policies on Indigenous Food Sovereignty, the Ganawage Case. Philippe is a master's student in criminology at the Université de Montréal. He has a bachelor's degree at Concordia University with a major in First People Studies and a minor in Sociology. Philippe did a student exchange in Rovaniemi in Finland in the Arctic Studies program. He also worked with Inuit communities in Nunavik and Makovic, as well as being involved with Indigenous organizations in Montreal. He has published articles and organized many events to foster better relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. He is not Indigenous and grew up in Teotihuacan or Montreal, and his main area of research is family violence in Indigenous communities. Welcome, Philippe. Thank you very much for introducing me. And yes, I'll talk a bit about my paper that I submitted. So um, it was a paper that was coming from a group project uh, in a class called Globalization and Indigenous Peoples. So that was part of my major in First People Studies at Concordia. So we wanted to look at the food systems in Indigenous communities, and I focused more specifically on their historical context. So how historically the government policies uh, impacted the food sovereignty. So I wanted to look at what what was the impact uh, in Ganawagi, in the context in, uh, of Ganawagi, but also in, in other parts of Canada. So I, I looked at the, um, the ways control and regulation of the food systems was done by government. So for example, uh, I was looking at the permit system that was limiting the, the access to indigenous people to, uh, for example, agriculture products. So they had to ask to sell the products. There was restriction also on mo- modern tools. So those types of regulation, were the, the, the impact and the, the goal was, uh, in a way, assimilation and, and the impact was to limit their, their faculty and their, their, their means to produce. And it was seen by non-Indigenous as, as competition. So it was to favor more non-Indigenous uh, farmers, agriculture, that kind of thing. Thank you very much. And thank you for submitting that paper. It was very interesting. Um, you mentioned that you chose to study the community of, of Ganawage. Why, why is that? Yes, yeah, so it was, it was some of our group members were from Ganawage. And, and in the, the classes, we, we underlined the importance of looking at the local history. So as we are in Jodragi, uh, Montreal, which is uh, a land that and Ganyangehaga, the Mohawk, are still custodian of the, the land. So it was it was important for us to look at the, the local history. So that's why uh, the case of Ganawagi was very interesting. And it's also um, 
context which is different from other parts of Canada because uh, the people from Ganawagi they were used to agriculture they were they were traditionally agriculture was part of the the their, their food systems so it was interesting to see um specifically in Ganawagi how the Indian Act and how other type of of regulation had impacted the community of of Ganawagi and um and had an impact on the relation of Ganyan Gehaga, the Mohawk. It has an impact on their relation with the land, basically. And when you tell me, you know, that they had um, that they had agriculture and it was part of their pre-existing society, can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? Would it be um, what we would consider as, you know, Euro-Canadian um, or colonial agriculture, or was it a little bit different? Or for sure, for sure, it was it was different and it evolved uh, throughout the centuries and and population were were moving. But what I could say about it is that um, it was a type of agriculture that was that was for for I I would I would I don't want to say survival, but it was it was for their own means. Uh, they they could they could do trading, but basically uh, it was mainly uh, corn that w- that was used, but also squash and other type of of food, but the way it was done, they were also changing uh, places. For example, after 10, 15, 20 years, they would change. Uh, they, they would they would move the, the community to, to make sure that the land were, had time to, to come back to... They, they didn't want to kind of abuse the land. They wanted to make sure the, the land was able to give the necessary. And when it was kind of enough, they were able to change. So it, it, was, it was for sure a different type of agriculture but um and it was it was not only agriculture it, there was also hunting and fishing it was a it was a complex uh, food system that was that was impacted which is which was not fully understood by Europeans and th- these misunderstandings were uh, very very yeah important when was the time to make regulation by the European after colonization mm-hmm. And before you mentioned, so for people who aren't familiar with the Indian Act, it was an act passed by the government, right, who were trying to regulate basically um, almost every aspect of Indigenous life. Can you talk a little bit more about the Indian Act? What was it goal, its goals, you know, the impacts that it had on Indigenous peoples, and then more specifically for your research? Yes, yes. So the Indian Act, uh, it, which is still in place, was, was enacted in 1876, uh, but the Indian Act was kind of a gathering of other acts that were in place before. So it, it's not the, the beginning, but it's, it's, a, it's a, another step in, in the goal of assimilation. And there, there's, there's this idea of that the Indian, quote unquote, have to be like Europeans. So the, 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 the perspective and the goal of this act was to, to create rules and, and create a context where, where the European were able to colonize uh, in a better way, and we talk about residential school, we talk about um, things like the, the reserve and the band console, so it has an impact on many aspects of indigenous lives, but I was looking more specifically on um, the the impact of Indian, Indian Act on the food system, so for example, on the land and ag- agriculture, um, there's, there's, there's many instances where we see that the Indian Act was used to to give land to non-indigenous people, for example, if the land was considered as not used, uh, it it could be attributed to non-indigenous uh, farmers or other other people to to make sure that the the indigenous land was was still shrinking. So 
that was uh, one of the the consequences of the the Indian Act and also enfranchisement. In, in, in so basically, uh, making sure that the the indigenous people were losing their quote unquote Indian status. So if someone has had a parcel of land and was, for example, uh, going to to war, getting a university degree, they would lose their their Indian status and would their land would be considered as non-indigenous. So that was the type of thing the Indian Act uh, could could do. And there were many changes, and but the, the Indian Act is still in place today, and these impacts are uh, still seen nowadays. You said they're still seen. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? For example, um, in contemporary times, what does the Indian Act still regulate, and you know what does it still influence for Indigenous peoples? Yeah, it's important to understand that it's not... All indigenous that are under the Indian Act, uh, for example, Inuit and Miti are not under the Indian Act, Indian Act and some indigenous nations uh, sign convention, for example, the James Brainerd and Quebec Agreement. So the Cree, they, they, some nations have uh, other type of regulation that are applied, but in general, the Indian Act uh, is still in place and it regulates, for example, the Band Council. So the Band Council, it's the, the governance. So uh, they imposed election. It's not a system that was coming from indigenous communities. So that that, that would be an example that's uh, still in place. Okay. And in your paper, I saw that you were talking about specifically the impact that the Indian Act had on women and how um, it impacted women differently than men. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. Yes. So um, it's it's also in the, the perspective of the, the European. So this misunderstanding was also... Uh, in there, there was misunderstanding regarding the role of women in indigenous culture, but specifically in the context of Ganawage, um, there was this misunderstanding about the role of women in agriculture and in the society in general. So, for for example, a woman would lose lose their her status if she was marrying a non non Indian status person. So basically, they, they were not recognizing their rights. Uh, for the equivalent and in terms of uh, agriculture their role was maybe different from from the male but they were considered as fragile and considered as as more weak and so they were imposing with the Indian Act but also with the other regulation and their their interpretation they were imposing this this Mm -hmm. view of woman as inferior even if it was not uh, originally or traditionally part of the 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 community of Gunwagen and of most uh, indigenous communities. It's interesting what you're saying in the sense that they were imposing, um, you know, European values and views of women on indigenous women, even though they weren't necessarily already present in society. So that's very interesting. Um, in terms of, of the time period you chose for your study, right? So for people who haven't read it yet, it's he chose, um, or the group actually chose 1800s to the 1900s. Why would you did you choose that particular time period? Did it have did the Indian Act have a more severe impact during that time period, um, or was it when there was more of a change in the ag- agricultural practices? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes. So I I focused more on the historical part, and we wanted to address this time frame because uh, first of all, it's the beginning of the Confederation, Canadian Confederation, as we know it now, and and basically there was a lot of changes. Um, usually, we define most changes after the War of 1812. So after this this war, the the power there was a power shift 
where where indigenous people were not seen as as important in the European perspective, and it was um, an intensification of of the idea of assimilation and, and indigenous people begin were were seen as more useless and and there was this idea of of assimilating them in the European culture in a way in the white world. So this this period is is very very interesting because there was a lot of changes. So with the Indian Act, but also uh, with other regulation, and there was more. Uh, it was an intensification of, of the involvement in indigenous indigenous lives. And we talk about Ganawagi, but in other communities, um, the the impact of the government also was more important. And um, for example, there was community were still nomad in the beginning of the 19th centuries, and with it was like kind of another step in the colonization process. So that was this time frame that I wanted to focus on because it was a very it was a very important period, and the the impacts of this period can be seen in the decades that were following and even today. So this relation between those changes and and their impacts are are very important. Thank you. And on page, I'm looking at your essay right now, and on page um, one to two, you have. A, a, a quote, I'm going to read it to you. It says, these people would need approval of Indian agents to sell agricultural products. Can you expand a little bit about that? What What did you mean by um, approval of Indian agents and why did they need approval to sell their products? Yes. Yes. So this, this specific part, um, it was it was specifically for, as they said, Western Indians. So in the, the Indian Act or in the regulation where sometimes applied for specific groups, so that's also important to understand. But the role of the Indian agent was was very very mm, big in in the in the daily life of the indigenous community. So he was there because he was often a man. The Indian the Indian agent had a lot of power. A lot of power. It was he was kind of representing the the government and the minister, and and that was giving the approval. Uh, so signing. Uh, the, the permit or, or, for example, with the past system, or you can go out of the community and giving approval. So this this process of asking a white person to give approval to indigenous people for doing basically uh, normal things, that was very common in, in the in the law and specifically for agriculture, it was it was a way to regulate and to make sure the the, the white European government was controlling what was going on and the goal one of the goal was to make sure there was less competition, so there was more place for non-indigenous uh, farmers. Uh, so that was that was one of the way the government was using the regulation to control the agriculture products and and yeah the, this industry. Interesting. So the um, the the agent was basically an indigenous person babysitter, right? So they were basically infantilizing indigenous people and just using their power to, like you said, use um, and allow basic everyday um, actions to occur. Would you say that was that would be correct or? We, we, we can say, obviously there's there's a, always different type of agent and, and the way the, the, yes, the law are written, but the way they are they are app applied can can vary a lot. But the but if they they wanted to apply the law, they they had a lot of power, and they, their power was was very important. And it could it, it can be seen yeah, as a a way of infantilization because because the the indigenous people 
had not the same um, they were kind of considered as as minor in in the in the eyes of the law in terms of of their their power and always have, have to ask other people uh, that's it's clearly different from what the non-indigenous uh, people uh, had as rights so the uh, for sure there's there's a big differences and and there was also resistance there was also resistance from from indigenous communities uh, when we talk about many many uh, things that that were that were in for even residential school or the the band council there was resistance and and even if the law was was written in a way um in reality it could be also different yeah and i'm also i'm still on page two um you wrote you wrote that um, and you mentioned just earlier that the method um, was used of controlling your know, food systems. It was suggested um, to reduce competition for non-Indigenous people. Was that, and I don't know if you can speak to this because this was obviously a long time ago um, in terms of, of this occurrence, but did, did it actually work? And was that actually the goal or was the goal just to sort of gain control and assimilate Indigenous peoples? Was it really a competition here or, you know, do you know what I mean? I would say I would say that if if we go back in kind of the mindset, we are in the time of expansion expansion of Canada. So so Canada began in you know more the Quebec Ontario region, but specifically Ottawa and and, and Montreal Quebec now nowadays. So this expansion uh, in in the West with the with the railway, um, it's it's really to put the indigenous people in in reserve and give place to new newcomers uh, so they were they were there and in terms of um, competition it was it, what what canada was doing was telling newcomers and and immigrants from other country come in canada there's free lands for you we're going to give you these lands even though they they were owned by i mean they they were the property of of indigenous people that but that was not recognized so it was they were using these kind of regulation to to make sure that there was there was more space for for non-indigenous uh, people. Okay, and I noticed also going through your paper and when I was reading it the first time that there was um, sort of two types of sources that you use for this paper. Um, the first one is, you know, academic papers. Um, some of the um, authors are indigenous or have worked with indigenous peoples. And then the other kind of, of um, source is government sources. So from Gouvernement Canada or, um, you know, from the uh, Department of Indigenous uh, Studies, which is not call that, but um, I'm going to call it that for sake of its name. Um, can you talk talk a little bit about how the information and how different um, the approach was for for both sources? So, if you were to compare government sources to academic sources. Yes, yes. For me, it was interesting to look back a bit more in the in the archives, also in the reports from um, this the, these indigenous uh, these Indian agent, uh, looking at the the their also their vocabulary and the way they they saw uh, indigenous people. And for sure, uh, we can uh, we can see that there's there's misunderstanding and there's a way of of uh, looking at indigenous people that that is interesting. But we but when we compare it to, uh, for example, more contemporary and academic uh, papers, we see that there's a, a big differences. And uh, I would say they they focus on they have different angles basically. So it's for me it's important to have this diversity of of sources. And when I look at, for example, at academic sources that are more recent, they can give us an overview, a more general idea uh, than than, for example, archives that are specific to. Uh, one year and and one uh, one report in this 
this particular year um, and the government government um, documentation maybe that's more contemporary it always depends uh, what's what's the sources but for example the royal commission of uh, on Ad- aboriginal people uh, it was it was done by the government of canada but the 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 commissioner one of them was was indigenous the other one was non-indigenous so it it always depends on on the the source but each each um, source has its perspective its angle and it is it is uh, different for sure and we mentioned earlier and you mentioned in in your in your bio that you had studied um in the Arctic Studies Program in Finland, you had also studied in Nunavik um, in, in, and also in Makjavik. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience there? Can you talk a little bit about how it has impacted your, your area of interest, your area of study, um, and also what general impact it had on you and what you learned? Yes, yes. So when I when I came to Concordia, I knew I, I wanted to do a stu- student exchange. So I, I began to look at the different programs and I wanted to learn more from um, other other Arctic people, other Arctic uh, states, because Canada is part of the Arctic Council, for example. So I looked at the, the different um, programs that are offered, and I was really interested about the, this Arctic Studies program in Rovaniemi in, in Finland, which is uh, north of Finland, uh, on the Arctic Circle. And uh, they are really specialized in Arctic studies, and, and they have the, an Arctic center and Arctic museum. So it was a very, very interesting experience to learn more also from an international perspective. So learning from from researchers and, and academics that are working with indigenous people, uh, not only in Canada or Finland, but also in Russia, for example, or other other uh, with other indigenous communities. And uh, in this region, uh, it's more the Sami people, which are the indigenous people of the region. So I got to learn a lot about the Sami people and had the the opportunity to travel also in Sami territory and and go uh, and and learn more about the, those people. So when I came back to to Canada to to continue my master. That's for sure. Things that I that I keep with me and uh, that are very very interesting. And um, and for the other, I, I worked in Makovic and Povornitsuk for two summers as um, as a they call it a counselor, but basically it was a day camp with the, with the Inuit youth. So that was also a very important experience. And and it was very interesting to to work in the community and contribute. Uh, it was for the development and for the the yeah the, the the well-being of the of the youth. So so we wanted to create activities and and it was in partnership with the with Nunavik and Nunavut government. So it was it was a very nice experience. And these all these experiences uh, culminate in 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 my desire to to contribute more uh, in the field of indigenous studies. In the way that 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 interests me, and now I decided to to take more uh, in criminological angle. So that's why I decided to do my master around uh, overcoming family violence. So learning from um, from stories from indigenous people who were able to go beyond uh, and and overcome family violence, even uh, even though uh, all the trauma related to colonization that we know. Uh, I want I wanted to. To learn more about the success stories and and see what we can learn from these positive experiences. And one question I had for you was: you went from um, a mass, uh, a major in first people studies and a minor in sociology to criminology. Is there a relation between both? Do you see? Do you use your you know your bachelor's and your master's? Um, and also, can you name for an, an instance in which you know sociology or first people studies were, were 
brought you something um, to your master's? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting because my first class at Concordia and my first paper I submitted was about uh, over-representation of indigenous people in, in Canadian prison. So the fact that around 30% of, of inmates in, in Canada are indigenous, even though if they represent around 5% of the population. So since the beginning of, of my studies at Concordia, that was this criminological angle was, was interesting me. And I did also a paper about uh, gangs indigenous gangs in, in the, the prairies in the class called juvenile crime and delinquency uh, in sociology class. So there, there's, there's for sure a lot of links to, to do with between these fields and the criminolo- crimin- criminology is related to, to sociology, to law, to political science, but also to first people studies as, as indigenous people are present in the, in the criminal system. So there, there's for sure a lot of, of links between between the programs and and I decided to do this major my these yeah major and minor because for me it had a lot of sense and and it was a continuation and in, and in, in, in my in my thoughts and in my the project I wanted to do criminology was uh, yeah something that, that I wanted to push further even though uh, I haven't done a lot of criminology in my bachelor at Concordia and that's why I had also to do a preparation year uh, before entering the master so Make sure there's a when we change program. Uh, sometimes that's something we have to do like one year uh, preparation. So that's what I'm doing right now, actually. So it's a two year program, but I have to add one year of preparation in the for the master. And I think my the last question I have for you um, today. Thank you first and foremost. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really great, um, and I really enjoyed this discussion. But the last question I would have for you today is. Um, for all the students out there who are non-Indigenous as you are and who want to study um, indigeneity in Canada, for what, whether it is criminology or society or culture or anything like that, do you have um, you know, a last piece of wisdom or a piece of advice for students who are non-Indigenous who want to enter this world and want to learn about it in a positive um, way and affect potentially positive change? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been told a lot of time that it's very, very important to to listen. Uh, that's that's the the first thing. Listen to to stories. Listen to what indigenous people have to say, because because they are the expert of their their own life. And I think that's the the most important thing that I I would want to stress and and look at what's what's going on and and also the the impact of our of our own um, of our, our own actions. And and it's it's more than just a Good faith and and good intention. So we have to to make sure that we we understand uh, the, the impact that we can have, and and it 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 begins by understanding what's what's going on right now, what's going what what happened in the in in our history, and and learning from indigenous nation, le- learning from the diversity of indigenous people in Canada and and even beyond. So I would I would say that I would encourage people to to. To open open their eyes and 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 consider indigenous perspective because indigenous perspective are everywhere in every field uh, and there there's always indigenous people are everywhere and they're part of uh, our society so that that would be uh, yeah what I would like to people to remember. That was very well said. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation and it was a pleasure.
To read Philips or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's Facebook page or Instagram for more information. Stories from Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CJLO Radio Station. It was hosted by me, Olivia, and edited by Marie Figuerero. Our sound design is by Malte Leander and artwork by Ali Brown. You can catch our show on the CJLO Airways at cjlo.com or on their channel at 16.90 a.m. every Wednesday at 4 p.m. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time.